turn once again to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We're still on the day of Pentecost. Been a long day, hadn't it? (laughs) Been here for a number of weeks. The Holy Spirit's come. He's baptized the believers. He's indwelt them and he's filled them. All those that had gathered in Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost. Peter being filled with the Spirit boldly and courageously stands up and explains what happened that day. Now, Peter knew that it was going to require some serious evidence in order to win the Jews over to faith. That's his goal here. There's over 200,000 people that have assembled, at least that in Jerusalem for Pentecost. He's got quite an audience. The same audience, many of them had turned their back on Jesus had been part of crucifying him, been part of mocking him and slapping him and spitting on him and certainly rejecting him by following the, the Jewish religion. So he had a real difficult challenge ahead of him. He had to convince them that the one that they mocked, the one that they spit on, the one that they crucified, and the one that they put to death was in fact Jesus from Nazareth. And so he proceeds to give four compelling truths that prove Jesus is the Messiah. And he began by presenting evidence from his life. And Peter reminded them that all the miracles that they had witnessed, they couldn't deny. They'd seen him. He'd done thousands, many of them, thousands of them, many of them uh, had not been recorded, so we don't know how many. We have 37 recorded. And so they couldn't deny then that these were the signs that God was using to validate that Jesus was, in fact, their Messiah. Remember, that's the whole purpose of miracles, signs, miracles, and wonders. The whole purpose of that is to validate Jesus, first of all, but also to validate those that were bringing the message of new revelation, the apostles. Secondly, he gave evidence from his death. And he told them that both his death and the means by which he was put to death, the way it was accomplished, was, was prearranged by God. It was foreknown and it was predetermined that he would be on the cross. And it was God's will that the enemies of the Lord gather against his son to do whatever his purpose predestined them to occur. Acts chapter 4. It was all predestined. It was all marked out. All predetermined. So that brings us to our text this morning. The third compelling truth that Peter offers is evidence from his resurrection. So Peter began with his life. He's walking through the gospel. Began with his life, then to his death, and now he proves that Jesus was raised from the dead. This is a brilliant sermon. A brilliant sermon. And so I hope you'll appreciate it as we go through it. Let's read it together. Verses 24 through 30. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. 
because you are not abandoned, you have not abandoned my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to set one of his descendants on the throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. There are a number of clues that we look for to identify an important thought in what we call a pericope. A pericope is a a unit of thought that's coherent. For example, the spirit coming was a pericope. It was a a unit of thought that goes together, and it can be a small unit in an entire chapter, or it can be a bigger unit. And so that's we want to look for that as we begin to understand Scripture. Sometimes we see the main idea as a repeated word. If you look at what we call concordance, it's one word in the Greek that's the same, and it should be repeated the same in a good translation. We call that concordance. Sometimes it's a repeated phrase. So it's not just a word, it's an entire phrase. But it can also be identified by the length of a particular section. You'll notice here that Peter spent one single verse on the Lord's life. He spent one single verse on his death. But Peter now spends nine verses dealing with the resurrection. That makes it extremely important. So the proportion of Scripture a lot of times will give you the emphasis As I mentioned before, Peter's sermon is a model of New Testament teaching and preaching. He establishes the pattern of the New Testament by showing that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central theme of the New Testament. It's a very, very popular theme. The apostles preached on it a lot. It's mentioned 156 times in the New Testament, and Acts explicitly mentions it 13 times. Peter mentions it, Paul mentions it, and then it's mentioned as all the apostles focusing on the resurrection. You might remember back in chapter 1, verse 22, we were told that one of the qualifications of an apostle was that they they had to have witnessed Jesus' resurrection. They had to have seen him resurrected. That tells you the importance of the resurrection. Without a doubt, it's the most profound and prominent truth in all of theology. In fact, Without the resurrection, Christianity would be nothing. Absolutely nothing. Certainly, his miracles were important. His death was important. But without the resurrection, none of that would have mattered. It would have just been a man doing miracles and a man dying. So without the resurrection, then, we have no Christianity. I'm sure you've heard that at Easter. I know I've preached on that before. Now, I want to show you there's an important connection here that we really don't want to miss. As I mentioned from time to time, um, sometimes our man-made divisions, whether it be chapter breaks or it even be the, the verse address itself, sometimes that can get in the way of what the Holy Spirit wants us to see. Remember, those are put in there by man, not in the original manuscripts. So sometimes 
very important threads are obscured by the introduction of those man-made divisions. We do not want to lose the connection between this verse and verse 23. It's a very important connection. We don't want to miss this. Remember, we learned that the Lord's death was prearranged, right? It was foreknown. It was, de- it was determined to be. And remember, what God knows must be a certainty. There's no guesswork there. And so his death was determined before the foundation of the world, and the means by which that would take place was also prearranged. Well, that same idea then is carried through the rest of Peter's sermon. It doesn't stop with his death. That's a banner over the rest of this sermon. Not only was his death prearranged, but also his resurrection. And we'll see that his ascension was prearranged the same way. So all of this is marked out. And as we really take a close look at Scripture, we really begin to believe Scripture, we've got to understand that God is sovereign over every single detail. He's in command of every single neutron, every single molecule. He is in absolute control. We can't see it on this end, but what a way of looking at life that God orchestrates all things. And ultimately, there's nothing that can happen to you and I as believers that won't work to our good. Not everything is good. Some things are very bad. But God somehow takes that tapestry and weaves that together. We see the backside of that. It looks pretty naughty, pretty gnarly. But He's creating a beautiful picture on the other side, and we'll see that someday. I'm looking forward to getting to heaven and looking back at all the things that didn't make sense and go, aha, that's how he worked that out. He was working that out in my life with 370 trillion other things at the exact same time to bring about a particular uh, point of his will. It's kind of an exciting way of looking at, at life, I think. If you have the NASB or the NIV, your translations read, but God... That's pretty famous around here. If you don't have one of those little butt God rocks, you need one. Rub it once in a while. I'm just kidding. But we did that because I did a series on butt God, and it's all through the Scriptures. And when you bump into it, you know that everything before it is impossible, and everything after it is absolutely certain and possible. The word but here is not in the original manuscripts. It's actually the word whom... And if you have the King James Version, you'll notice that's there. It's whom, it's not but. However, we still have a but God moment here. Man was responsible for putting them to death, but God, what? Raised him up. God was in charge of all that, and God used human hands to carry out his will, but God still held them responsible. So here's what he's saying. You put him to death... And just a simple little statement. And God raised him. Very simple. Very understated, isn't it? Kind of amazing. That's a big moment, right? What that tells us is that what man means for evil, God means it for what? You guys know the passage. Good. Perfect example where God can take the worst sin in history and the worst people in history, because they crucified the Messiah and brought Jesus to life in order to give the gospel to the people who killed him. 
It's amazing grace. I touched on that, I don't remember, last week or whenever it was. That's, that's the point of this passage is God is speaking to the Jews, the ones who rejected him, the ones who didn't in any way deserve it. And the very first thing right out of the chute, very first sermon in the New Testament, Peter is giving them the gospel of grace. Amazing. The main thought here is by the resurrection that God put an end to the agony, the agony of death. That's the main idea here. Agony is an interesting word in the Greek. It's the word odin, and it literally means the anguish of birth pangs or birth pains. Peter, led by the Spirit here, used this word as a metaphor to describe the Lord's death. Why? Why did he pick this word? Always, it's always interesting to me. Why would the author pick a certain word and not another word? Because there's very rich meaning with this word. It's only used three other times, and as each time it's related to God's judgment in the last day. Those are the birth pains. Watch for birth pains. Wars and rumors of wars. Those are all birth pains leading up to uh, the ultimate judgment of God. But here, Peter takes that word and he applies it to the Lord's death. Now, here's the question we'd ask them for thinking about this word then. Why is his death depicted as birth pangs? Well, I'm sure we could ask the young moms this morning that have just recently experienced it. Women experience birth pains in childbirth, right? And nauseous sometimes and all that goes with it, right? Oh, I feel so bad for some of the women that have a lot of sickness. I don't see how they do it. I wouldn't get out of bed. I'd just say, I'll see you in nine months, church. I'm a wimp, I know. So women experience birth pains, but what happens at the end of that? Out of all that travail and anguish, what happens at the end of that? Joy. Right? You ladies forget about that pain, right? And then you go back and do it again. Right? And you go, why did I do that again? Stay away from me, husband. But there's a blessing at the end of that travail and the end of that anguish. And what is it? It's brand new life. The same is true as it relates to judgment. The birth pains in the day of the Lord and the last near the end of the tribulation is going to bring something amazing. It's going to bring forth a new life of peace and joy. We call it the millennium. Where the earth goes back to its original form. It's perfect. Everybody that begins the millennium will be perfect. There'll be a, a brand, everything will be fresh. Everything will be wonderful. I can't wait till I have a, a tomato in the millennium. They're good now. Everything's going to be birth. Everything's going to be new. Somebody was asking me this morning if I thought there would be seasons and uh, would there be fall and spring. I don't think so. I think it's going to be perfect. I don't think there's going to be death. At least not planet, the plants and, and agriculture and all that, the, 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 the wilderness is going to blossom. The desert's going to blossom. Everything's going to look beautiful. It's beautiful today, but it's going to look amazingly beautiful once there's new birth of creation. So we might say it this way, that the tomb that brought death became a womb that birthed life. 
Only God can turn a tomb into a womb. And friends, only God and God alone can raise the dead to life. Nobody can work for it. You can't bring yourself from death to life. A leopard can't can't change his spots. It's impossible to do. So what does he mean by death here? Well, make sure we know that this is not the first death. According to Hebrews 9.27, man is appointed to die once, and then after that come to judgment. What he's speaking of here is the real death, the big death, the second death. And it's mentioned in Revelation 21.8, and it's a death that not everybody's going to experience. It's an eternal death reserved for those who reject Christ. It's called the lake of fire. And it's a place totally separated from God. It's where Satan and his demons will be. It's a place somehow where God is not there. There's no fellowship. There's only darkness. There's only pain, eternal suffering, and misery. This is the death that Jesus Christ put an end to. We're going to die physically. But only those who reject Jesus, only those who refuse to accept the gospel, they're going to experience that second death. And it's an eternal death of separation from God. You get that, right? We all know people around us that are hanging by a thread And they're about ready to fall into that abyss, that lake of fire. Jesus put an end to that for those who put their faith in him, who trust in him. Have you done that? Have you given your life to Christ? Isn't it time if you have not? Today would be the day. You must do it today if you have not. If you have any doubt, ask him. Get down on your knees and ask Him to forgive you of your sins. That you're willing to repent. Now, there was never, ever a question whether Jesus would be left in the grave. Never a question. Why is that? Because it was impossible for Him to be held in its power. Impossible. He died, but it couldn't possibly stay there. It was beyond the possibility for at least four reasons. First of all, the resurrection was a divine promise. And God always fulfills his promises. In John 2.19, Jesus told the Pharisees, you destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That was a promise. That's referring to his physical resurrection. His temple would be resurrected. Of course, they were thinking about the physical temple. Secondly, it was God's will that his people be with him for all eternity. Whom he saves, they're going to be with him. John 14, 19 says, After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. That's a promise. It's a guarantee. Because God wants his people with him. He came and tabernacled in the Old Testament to be with his people his people will tabernacle with him. Thirdly, he couldn't stay in the grave because he defeated the devil. Hebrews 2.14 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death 
he might render powerless him who had power, had the power of death, that is the devil. By conquering death, Jesus rendered Satan powerless against those whom he died for and those whom would believe. The chains have been broken. As I said earlier, friends, there's no way, as I was reading this verse this week, there is no possible way any human being could break those chains that Satan has wrapped around our necks unless Christ did it. Fourthly, it was a prophecy that had to be fulfilled. It was a necessity. Now, to further validate the resurrection, Peter reaches back to the words of David in Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. And he says in verse 25, For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Keep in mind here, he is speaking to the Jews And David was the Jews, one of the Jews' greatest heroes. He was a national hero. Remember, he beat Goliath, of course. And then he became the second king, and he led the nation into this great condition of power and glory. So so David was very much the light here for them. They loved and adored him. Now, the fact that Peter then brings up David, it had to be a heart stopper. There had to be just this silent, almost breathless culture. 200,000 people listening to this going, what? Had to be a shocker. And here's the reason why. David tells them that their beloved David spoke of Jesus Christ. It's, It's amazing how Peter pushes them into a corner with truth. It's a good sermon, I suppose. Now, the fact that Peter then brought up David, it it, it had to be a shocker to them. And he's telling them this, that the same Jesus that they saw as a blasphemer, David saw as the Messiah. And again, they they love David, right? And so so what he's doing is he's sort of resurrecting David, so to speak, and bringing him out and saying, I want to tell you what what, what your king said about Jesus. Now, I want to pause for a moment just to talk a little bit about interpreting prophecy. As as we've taught and we've handled some of these prophecies, I've I've realized that it's very, very important that we know how to handle them. Because if we don't know how to handle them, we're going to misinterpret them, right? And so there's a... There's a hermeneutic, there's a science and and a a way of handling prophecy that we have to know about. We've already learned about prophetic foreshortening, right? In other words, if they could see two mountaintops, they could see a gap here of the church between, they couldn't, so they were viewing it this way. So they looked down the corridors of time and they thought, well, it's just all one event. Jesus is going to come back, he's going to fix everything. He didn't know there was, they didn't know there was going to be a, a, a church age there. And then we talked about the law of double reference. We come to Joel, and we realize that Joel was only partially fulfilled, but it looks forward to a final fulfillment at the end of the tribulation. So those two are important things. There's another feature here of prophecy that if we don't understand, it's not going to make any sense. In fact, I was reading this over with somebody this week, and he goes, what does that mean? 
This sounds so confusing. Very often, it's a prophetic pattern to put God's words, exact words, right in the mouth of the one speaking. So we have to understand here that David is speaking. David wrote this, but this is Jesus speaking through him. Friends, this is inspiration. This is a thousand years before, and Jesus is talking through the mouth of David. David's not just repeating his words. This is Jesus talking through him. And he's speaking about his trust in the Father as he looked forward to the cross. So we're getting a little eternal insight here into what Jesus knew a thousand years before it actually happened. Of course, he's known everything always, but we get a little insight here. So when David says, I, it's Jesus speaking. And when David says, I saw the Lord, he's referring to his father. Does that make sense? So, so this, is, this brings clarity to it, that what David is doing here is he's speaking truth, but it's Jesus talking. And he's going to share why he has such confidence in the death of his, own, of his own body. So the first thing he says, and he said, I saw the Lord always in my presence. So literally, it says, I saw the Lord before me through everything. In other words, Jesus always had his eyes on his father. He could always see him. He was always before him. Some of you know that uh, we've got a little puppy. And I've had the privilege of taking this puppy to puppy training class. And I want you to know, she is the best dog in the entire class. I'm not kidding you. I'm really struggling with the pride. It's amazing how pride sneaks up on you. Be walking that little doggy around, and somebody will go, that's a really good dog. And you go, it's our doggy. Perfect dog. But one of the things we've learned in this class is one of the keys to training a dog is to get them to keep their eyes on the master. And so when they go to get something, you don't want them to. I forget the word now. You tell them to leave alone, whatever. And they're supposed to get their eyes back on you. Or if it's a barking issue, you get the dog's eyes back on you. And so when they get distracted, they become disobedient. And that's exactly what happens to you and I. We get our eyes off the Lord when something comes into our life. And we get distracted. And we get tense. That's, that's what really what anxiety is when it comes down to it. We, we, we get our eyes off of our confidence in Jesus, right? So no matter what came Jesus' way, he was always confident. Why? Because he always had the Father before him. He had that confidence that he was always there. The famous example, of course, is when Peter got out on the water. Peter was doing great when he did what? Kept his eyes on Jesus. Then the, the winds came, right? Then what did he do? He got distracted. And what happened? Began to sink. You know, that's almost like that's a divine illustration. That is so good. Isn't that a beautiful illustration? That is, that is just a kindergartner can understand that. Jesus never did that. 
He's looking to the cross and he's going to be crushed by his father. And he has absolute confidence and trust and assurance with no anxiety. Now, what did he see? He says he saw the father at his right hand. You chase the idea of right hand throughout Scripture, it always means loving protection. So get this little glimpse of his father's there, and he's at his right hand, he's going to protect him because he loves him. By the way, traditional wedding, um, the organization of a wedding, is the husband should always stand on the right side. If your husband didn't stand, your marriage is void, no good. So the husband should always stand on the right side. That was always tradition because that marked protection and love. It, it, it's an old, it's an old uh, example. It's been like that forever. In the ancient world, this is interesting, that the guard who is guarding somebody would always stand on their right. So if I was guarding somebody, they'd be standing here. And the reason why is they would take their shield and they would block them with their shield and they would fight with their right hand. So this is what Jesus sees in his father. He's standing there and he knows he's going to protect him. He's confident of that. And in keeping his eyes on the father, he also knows that he won't be shaken. The Greek word just means disturbed or troubled or rattled. Jesus is at peace as he knows perfectly well what he's going to experience. We think of the horror of the physical pain But I think what really got him was looking out and seeing, I'm going to be separated from my father. He's going to turn his back on me. That was the real horror of the cross. We we look at it physically and certainly it was awful. But he's not troubled. Because he has confidence. He sees his father. He's standing at the right hand. Powerful, protecting, completely loving. So Jesus is simply saying this, as I, as I look to the cross, I have nothing to fear. I'm going to willingly go to the cross because God is my protector and I trust him. Friends, this is the secret to anxiety. This is the secret is keeping our eyes on Jesus, keeping him in our focus, keeping his promises there and keeping his people around us. Right? It all goes together. Now he continues in verse 26. He says, Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. Because he had such confidence in his Father, he's completely filled with joy here. That that is the accumulation of his heart and his tongue and his flesh all combined to show that his confidence and his assurance was completely in the Father. His heart, his tongue, and his flesh, all of them together, completely assured. Even the prospect of the cross didn't dampen the Lord's joy. We're familiar with Hebrews 12 too. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Part of the reason he enjoyed that He didn't enjoy the pain, but part of the reason that he enjoyed that was that he could see his father there. And he had confidence in his father. And he looked beyond the pain to the result, which was what? You and I. If we're believers. Friends, we're the joy of that cross. 
We're the joy that came out of that pain. We're the new birth that came out of that death. Boy, if that doesn't make you worship, we ought to stand up right now and be charismatic. And flail our hands around and our arms around. I know some of you wouldn't do that until you get to heaven, I know. He laid down his life with joy because he could see his father. He trusted in his father. I want you to notice that the word flesh here is set apart from heart and tongue. Why is that? It's set apart for emphasis. Notice that he says, moreover. So he's emphasizing his flesh over his heart. And he says, moreover, yet still my flesh will live in hope. So what he's doing here, very carefully, is he's drawing his attention to his flesh. That would be his body. And so the word live here in the Greek literally means to pitch a tent or to camp out. Really important word. It creates some important imagery. The idea of pitching a tent or camping out in the Old Testament implied security and a lasting dwelling place. It's the same word that's used in the parable of the, of the fig tree or the tree where all the birds nest in that tree. They settle in it in peace. That's the same Greek word here. So Jesus is really saying, he says, I know I can pitch my tent. I can lay my body in the grave with absolute confidence. It's significant here that Peter switches from the aorist tense as he com- contemplates the future. So, at, so in other words, that, that little dotted line there, I've added that to kind of give you some tenses so you'll become familiar with those. So that's just at the moment, and based on what Jesus knew, he had joy. But then he switches to the future tense as he looks to the future, as he anticipates his resurrection. He said that I'll pitch my tent, but I also will know I will live. I won't stay in that grave. Now in verse 27, he goes on to explain why he's so confident. He says, because you will not abandon my soul in Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Peter here is lifting another passage from the Old Testament, Psalm 1610. And he knows for sure that he won't be left in the grave, that his soul won't be left in Hades. That means the realm of dead. He's not in hell here. It's the realm of dead. It means, and by application here, it's in the grave. Jesus knew that God wouldn't allow his holy one, notice he's described himself as the holy one, to under, undergo decay. Jesus knew at that time that he would only be in the grave three days. Because we know from the event of Lazarus, Lazarus was in how many days? Four. And remember what Martha was afraid of? He stinketh. Right? She was worried about the smell. So Jesus knew this is a sort of an indirect prophecy of knowing that he was only going to be there three days because his body would not decompose. Three days. So how did Jesus know that? In verse 28, 
you have made known, that's past tense, to me the ways of life. The Father had, been no, had made, made known the ways of life by means of a resurrection that leads to life. That's what he's talking about here. He's not jumping ahead of life. He's just saying he knows the hope and that's leading to resurrection life. And then he says, you will make, future tense, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. He's saying that I'm confident that I'm going to rise. My body won't see corruption. You've made the path clear to me. I'm coming out of the grave, and when I come out of that grave, on the other side, I'm going to be in your presence. Ascension. It's all right here. That's exactly what happened. That is is mind-boggling to me. That Jesus is speaking through a prophet, given every single detail that happened precisely as it was stated. Let me say this. I'm gonna, I was going to save this till next week, but I need to say it now, I think. This is the pattern for interpreting prophecy. We don't bring it forward and spiritualize it and rationalize it away and tell that's not what it means Even though it says what it says, that's not what it means. We see this pattern being brought forth. Peter is lifting two Old Testament passages, three we'll look at here in a minute, and he's bringing those forward, and how is he interpreting those? As precisely as they're stated. I feel better now, thank you. Now, Peter wants no confusion here. If we were to read on down here and we had any questions about who was speaking, this makes it clear in verses 29 through 31. He explains David's prophecy. So he's taught the truth and now he's explaining it. That's what people do in sermons. They bring the truth out. They explain that truth. And he says in 29, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. I want you to notice something. Notice he only cites that David died and was buried. What's missing here? Give you a little hint. Resurrection. Good job. He wasn't resurrected. David's body saw corruption. The tomb here, unlikely that the tomb is pretty close probably to where they were. They could have seen it or actually pointed to it, but it was a visible reminder that he didn't go to heaven. His body went into the grave when he died. So here's his point, just to clarify. David couldn't have been the one that he was speaking about. He could not have been speaking about himself because he wasn't resurrected. And he's not the Holy One, by the way. He continues to explain that in verse 30. And so, because he was a prophet, a mere prophet, important, but just a prophet, and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne. This is a massive passage. Massively important. Again, Peter reminds the crowds that David was just simply a Prophet, not the Messiah. But he still had a special purpose. He'd been given an oath. An oath is a promise, of course. It was an unconditional promise. 
made by God. And that oath is called the Davidic covenant. You've probably heard of it before. It's one of the many covenants in the Old Testament. The Davidic covenant. Very important, very important covenant. Because if this covenant was broken, we wouldn't have Jesus on the throne today. When God made a promise, he keeps those promises and he keeps them exactly as he says. So he offers several key promises here in this covenant. First of all, it includes an affirmation of the land promises. And these promises were made earlier in the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants. So they're sort of brought over into the Davidic covenant. And verse 10 explains the land promise. He says, I will also appoint a place for my people. Notice a place, a place for Israel. I will plant them. He's not completely planted them yet. It started, but he's not completely planted them. And they will live in their own place. That's Jerusalem. And listen, not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. There's going to come a point where Israel is going to be placed in their land. Every single land promise is going to finally be fulfilled. God's going to plant them there, and there's not going to be any more enemies. That's still future. That Was it 19? What was it when they were reestablished as a nation? 19, 1948? Maybe, now we can get this now, maybe a partial fulfillment? They have enemies. They're being bothered and bombed all the time. This has not been fulfilled yet. But there's going to come a time where they're going to be in their own place. Friends, listen, I've said it before. Everything, everything hangs on Israel. All the promises hinge on God being faithful to his people so that he can be faithful to us. The second promise of the Davidic covenant is that David's son is going to succeed him as king of Israel. This was partially fulfilled in his son Solomon. This is clear from verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise your descendant after you. That's Solomon. Who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. So Solomon then replaced his father once he died. Now I want you to notice... Those promises, the promise of the Davidic covenant, begin to expand as they continue. Thirdly, Jesus would become the ultimate heir to David's throne. We see this in verse 13 of the covenant. He says, he will build a house for my name. By the way, a house here is a dynasty. It's, it's, a, it's an authority, an earthly authority, not just a physical house, but an earthly authority. Build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. When? Forever. That was not Solomon. And then he restates it again in verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me. When? Forever. And the throne shall be established forever. Jesus Christ is going to have authority over the earth. There's going to be a universal dynasty. He's going to have a kingdom. There's going to be people. And he's going to have a throne where he rules with absolute authority. 
So what began as a promise then that David's son Solomon would be blessed and he'd build a temple turns into a promise of an everlasting kingdom with King Jesus. They're all kind of putting all this together. Wait a minute. David's talking about the guy we murdered? The guy from Nazareth? Nobody, nothing good comes from Nazareth. But wait a minute, wait a minute. We heard David say it. Did you see the scriptures? David gave evidence. A thousand years earlier, David talked about this Messiah. What do you think? Verse 31. He plainly comes out and states, wants to make it clear, good pastor, good preaching. He says in verse 31, he, that's David, looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. There it is. That he would neither be abandoned to Hades nor his flesh suffer decay. And the crowd, there probably wasn't much breathing. 200,000 people had to be stunned thinking, oh my goodness. We, we saw him as a blasphemer. And this is saying David's looking forward. What David was speaking about was the resurrection. Then he brings his point home in verse 32. This Jesus, can you just imagine? It's just silent probably. A couple hundred thousand people. It's just got to be silent. And he says, this Jesus, the implication the one that you mocked and spit on and beat and crucified, this Jesus, God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. The argument is conclusive. Jesus, the man from Nazareth, from nowhere, they saw him. They saw him do miracles. The one God put to death by means of their wickedness. This was the one that God raised from the dead. And the one they all saw with their own eyes, they saw the Messiah. So Peter then brought not only evidence from his life, his death and his resurrection, and now he finishes. And he, he, he closes his sermon by showing evidence from his exaltation. This is wonderful. This is an incredible passage. Not only was his death foreknown and predestined, so was his resurrection. And now we see also his ascension and session into the glory and power of heaven. Verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. This brings his listeners right back to the beginning of Pentecost. The listeners have gone full circle now. And he said, I told you at the beginning, this is what happened. What you've heard and seen today was a fulfillment that the promise would come and the Holy Spirit would be sent by the Father. By the way, Jesus gave that promise in John 7, 39, when it tells us that the Spirit hadn't yet been given because Jesus hadn't yet been glorified. Now, think about it a minute. He's taking them back to Pentecost, and he's saying, you know that the Holy Spirit could not have come 
unless the Messiah went back to heaven. That's the Jesus you killed. He just argues by scripture, pushes them right into a corner, and they're squirming. They can't get out of it. And they're thinking, David, our hero, has told us that we killed him and he was raised and ascended to heaven. As we'll see, some of them came to recognize, I killed the Messiah. To further validate his claim, Peter quotes another verse from the Old Testament. This time it's Psalm 110.6 or 110.1. He says, For it was not David who ascended to heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at the right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet. Just like before here, David is not speaking about himself. There's no scripture that even hints at the idea that David ascended into the heaven and sat on the Father's right hand. It's plain as day. David, David here is quoting what the Father said to Jesus. And the Father said to him, who's David's Lord, sit at my right hand until all your enemies are completely subdued. Seated on the right hand is a place of the highest honor, and power, and authority. Jesus has finished the work. He's seated. And that's where Jesus is until God the Father puts his enemies under his feet. Interesting imagery. Comes out of Joshua chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. Joshua commanded the chief leaders of the Jewish army when they subdued an enemy king, they put their foot on his neck. That, my friends, is a picture of a victory that's already ours. He has his foot on the neck of the enemy. He just hasn't pushed down on it yet. That's for us. I love that imagery. And guess what? We'll be spectators when that happens. We're going to see that happen. And you talk about a worship service. When we, see, when we see evil destroyed, we'll see it through perfect eyes. I know we have struggle with that sometimes now. When, when justice is finally done and God deals with true justice, unlike what we're seeing today, that's going to be a moment of great thrill and joy. Friends, listen. This part is just as foreordained, foreknown, and predetermined as anything else. It's a done deal. We won. God's got his foot on the neck of the enemy. All he has to do is push down, and they're done. I think that's a thrill. I don't know about you. Maybe that sounds bad. I think that's kind of, I like justice. <laughs> I do. I go crazy on TV where I see these people beating up on people. I want to jump through the TV and, hmm, don't you? This drives me crazy. I'm looking forward to justice. I'm just glad I'm not going to get what I deserve. But, you know, <laughs> I guess I got, I guess I got to say that. <laughs> so Peter here is, 
provided overwhelming evidence that Jesus is indeed Israel's long-awaited Messiah. Verse 36, he draws his sermon to a powerful close. He says, therefore, because of the undeniable evidence, let all the house of Israel know for certain, no question, that God has made him both Lord and Christ. And look at the last line here. This is, this is the way you end a sermon. This Jesus, whom you crucified. Not very seeker-friendly, is it? We don't want to be seeker-friendly. We want to be truthful. And this is the greatest statement of grace because only in knowing what they've done and that they're guilty will they turn to Christ. The verdict is in. Over 200,000 Jews heard that they put their Messiah to death. David confirmed it. The miracles confirmed it. God the Father confirmed it. Pentecost confirmed it. That's straightforward preaching because he tells them and points his finger in their face and says, you are guilty. The fr- friends, the evidence is undeniable. Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Every detail was foreknown and predestined. Here's the question. What will you do with that truth this morning? If you've not received Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you've not given your life to Him, you are guilty. And you will be judged. This last statement that he says that he made him both Lord and Christ. You know what that means? That means that every single one of us is going to stand before him either accepted because of the blood of Jesus or rejected because we rejected the blood of Jesus. We all put him on the cross. We're all guilty. And so the Holy Spirit is pointing a finger at us this morning saying, It's time to repent and turn to Christ. Friends, it must be today. If you've not done that and you're not sure, in the quietness of your heart, say, God, I need you. I know I'm a sinner. I know I need eternal life. I want to turn from my ways and live for you. So the question remains, what do we do with him? Either reject him, And he will reject you or accept him and you'll be accepted. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this magnificent passage this morning that gives us a little glimpse at the power, the power of the inspired word. That a thousand years before Jesus spoke through the mouth of David with an understanding of what was going to take place. Lord, our minds are so finite, it's hard to understand the magnitude of that, the magnificence of that. Father, this reminds me, and it should should be truthful to all of us, we can trust Scripture. It's perfect. 
And it's fulfilled perfectly, as you say. Father, I pray this morning that if there's anybody here that is hesitating or holding back, that, that you, your spirit might open their hearts so that they can see the need and glory of Jesus. There's no other decision that's more important. So I pray right now, God, if it be your will, lift the scales so that they can receive and believe in Jesus Christ. Father, we are thankful at this very moment that Jesus conquered death. It's our only hope. And we find that in the arms of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.